Good morning. My name is Peter Kroll. I am one of the elders of our church. This morning, we draw near the end of teaching through the book of Mark, which is one of the biographies of Jesus in the New Testament. And as we approach the end of Mark, I wanted to begin by reminding you that, that we have asserted all along that Mark's main point about Jesus that he wants to make is that Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. On your outlines, you can see that the map of the book of Mark, that Mark splits up pretty evenly into two halves. The first half laid out this king's credentials, and the second half shows us the king's pain. And so as we come near the end, we see that the king sacrifices himself here, and the, the battered son inaugurates a visible kingdom. Jesus is the king. He is the king you never expected. He is the king with the authority of heaven and earth. He is the king who calls his followers. He is the king who forgives sins, and he is the king who fixes what is broken. And all through this book, Mark has given us a good, clear look at this king. This morning, we find ourselves in chapter 15. If you have one of the church Bibles, it's on page 553. And before we get into this chapter, I want to remind you of a few specific things that have happened in this book. In chapter 10, verses 33 and 34, Jesus predicted what was going to happen to him. He said to his disciples, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So Jesus said exactly what would happen from the Jewish leaders and then from the Gentile leaders. Last week at the end of chapter 14, we saw his trial with the Jewish leaders who condemned him to death. And now that we come to chapter 15, they will deliver him over to the Gentile leaders. The, the Gentiles are simply the, the non-Jewish civil leaders of the day. It's the Roman Empire. While he was on trial, let me remind you of one more thing from last week. While he was on trial in chapter 14, the, the high priest demanded that Jesus answer the question, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? The Christ was this Jewish phrase used of the chosen one that God appointed to rule as king. And when Jesus was forced to answer that question on trial, he didn't tell a parable, and he didn't dance around the question. He came straight out and he said, I am. This is in chapter 14, verse 62. I am. And you shall see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus unequivocally claimed to be the appointed king that the Jews were waiting for. And if his claim was true, this would change everything. 
because that would mean that he's the king who will bring in everlasting righteousness and peace with God. But that council of judgment, they had already decided beforehand that it must be false. And so when he makes the claim, they condemn him to death. But they got to the point where they condemned him to death, but but they don't have the civil jurisdiction to execute religious offenders. They must take him to the Roman governor. And that's where we find ourselves today. And as we come to, to chapter 15, in these first 20 verses, we can state Mark's main idea here in three words, identity, release, and mockery. These are the three sections that we'll work through. With these three words, release, identity, sorry, identity first, then release and mockery. With these three words, we'll get closer to understanding who Jesus is and why he came. And in each case, Mark wants us to take a good, hard look at this king. Let's pray, and I'll read the first paragraph. Father in heaven, thank you for this time in your word. And thank you for showing us Jesus, the king, the battered king, the convicted king, the one whose identity brings release and leads to mockery. We pray that you would help us to see Jesus more clearly than ever. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First, don't mistake this man's identity. Verses 1 through 5. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. So here, Jesus is delivered over. In verse 1, this is after the Jews have, have made their sentence that, that he is deserving of death. They need to have a council to figure out how to execute that sentence. And they can't go to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, with, they they can't go to him with a, a, a charge of, this guy thinks he's the son of man that our prophet Daniel spoke of. Because that's what he, he claimed in chapter 14. They, they can't do that. So presumably they, they translate this into language he'll understand. They translate it, the significance of his confession into the phrase, the king of the Jews. He is claimed to be the king of the Jews. So they take him and hand him, deliver him over to Pilate. And in verse 2, Pilate, he must allow Jesus to defend himself. So he says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus sort of agrees. You have said so. So he doesn't deny it. In verse 3, then, the chief priests let loose with all of their accusations. And in verses 4 and 5, Pilate is amazed at Jesus' silence in the face of all of their accusations. There is one thing he spoke to. You have said that I am king of the Jews. But everything else he is silent about. What does Mark, the author here, what does he want us to see? 
He wants us to see that when it comes to Jesus' self-respect and his self-defense, he remains silent. But when the question arises, who are you? Jesus answers crisply and clearly. Anything else, he's silent. But who are you? Are you the king of the Jews? He will answer crisply and clearly. Friends, make no mistake, this trial is about Jesus's identity. Don't mistake this man's identity. Jesus doesn't care what people say about him. He doesn't care what charges they have to bring against him. Jesus doesn't care what Pilate or the the Jewish chief priests think about him. And at this point, he doesn't even care what they do to him. But there is one thing and one thing alone that he absolutely cares about. And that is making sure they know exactly who he is. Don't mistake this king's identity. Jesus is the king of the Jews. Let me illustrate. Coming to know God is not like coming to a lineup of suspects where we bring in the suspects in the lineup and you're looking at Jesus and Moses and Muhammad and Confucius and the Buddha and you're trying to, you want to come to God and you're trying to pick the right personality to close the case for you. Coming to know God is not like that at all. Coming to know God is much more like meeting a king. And I've never met a king, but I hear it's an awe-inspiring experience. Coming to know God is like coming face to face with the king. And you need to get him, get it right. Jesus is the king. He's not just one of many options. How does this apply? Look at this king and identify him properly. As we read this story and we see Jesus on trial, this man, Jesus, he is not just a sad story. We shouldn't look at him and feel bad. We don't look at him merely for an example of patience and humility or for inspiration to get through a hard day. As we look at Jesus, we should see God's appointed king. This man claimed to be God's representative on earth. This man claimed to know you better than you know yourself. This man claimed ownership of your wealth and your future and your dreams and your life. And so when he tells you to pray, you pray. And when he tells you to give, you give. When he tells you to love your neighbor as yourself, you love your neighbor. When he tells you to welcome the children, you better welcome them. This is no mere man that we see bound before Pilate. This is no sob story. This is no victim of unfortunate circumstances. This is God's appointed king. He owns you. He owns your stuff. He owns the world. And if you know only one thing about him, know this. He is the king. Look at this man and identify him properly. Second, don't miss the king's release. First, don't mistake this man's identity. He is the king. Second, don't miss this king's release. Verses 6 through 15. Now at the feast, he used to release for them. This is talking about Pontius Pilate, the governor. 
At the feast, he, Pilate, used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Pilate totally gets it that Jesus is king of the Jews because twice more in this paragraph, he calls Jesus by that title. Verses 9 and 12. Pilate also gets the fact that though the title, King of the Jews, is inflammatory, it is not political. Pilate concedes in verse 14 that Jesus has done no evil. And in verse 10, Pilate perceives that Jesus is on trial not for doing anything wrong, but for provoking envy among the chief priests. And Mark includes these details to show us clearly that Jesus is innocent and that Pilate, the governor, knows that Jesus is innocent. But notice how Mark, how the narrator, frames this episode. In verse 6, he says that Pilate's annual practice was to release a prisoner at this holiday feast. And in verse 7, there was another man in custody who truly was guilty of wrongdoing. This guy named Barabbas had committed murder in the insurrection, verse 7. He says, in the insurrection. Mark never explains this insurrection. It must have been so infamous that the original readers all would have heard of it. And this guy who started the insurrection is there in custody. And in verse 8, the crowd goes to Pilate and they ask him to do as he usually did for them. And they beg him to continue this tradition of pardoning a prisoner, of releasing someone, And so Pilate, verse 9, he wants to use that tradition to try to release the innocent king of the Jews, Jesus. But in verse 11, the envious priests stir up the crowd to demand that Barabbas be released instead. And in verse 15, Pilate never condemns Jesus as guilty, but he executes him for convenience sake. See in verse 15, Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released Barabbas and delivered Jesus to be crucified. You see, Mark tells the story this way for a reason. He just showed us that the only thing Jesus cares about is his identity as the king of the Jews. But we need to understand, what does it mean for him to be the king of the Jews? What is God's chosen king supposed to do? Jesus told us this earlier. Let me remind you, in in Mark 2, verse 10, Jesus said that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. 
And in Mark 10, 45, Jesus said, talking of himself, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Jesus has spoken enough words. He has done enough deeds. Here in chapter 15, it is time for him to do what he said he would do. And so Mark tells us the story of an innocent king, the one who has done everything right, and the civil authorities can't deny his completely lawful lifestyle. And we also have the story of a guilty rebel, one who completely deserves to be where he is, who is locked up and on death row. And the innocent one gets treated as though he's guilty, and the guilty one gets treated as though he's innocent. Pilate hands Jesus over to his soldiers, has him whipped, and delivers him to be crucified, where he will be nailed naked to a tree and left to bleed out and asphyxiate. Pilate is guilty of great injustice to prevent social unrest. The Jewish leaders are guilty of not recognizing the king appointed by the God they claim to serve. The crowds are guilty of being manipulated into demanding an innocent man's blood and a guilty man's release. Note the irony that Barabbas was a rebel in the insurrection. This Jewish man, Barabbas, does not like the Roman regime. He is fighting against Rome, and the Roman governor releases him as a way to calm the crowd. What do you think Barabbas is going to do with his freedom? He will almost certainly go back to whipping them up in revolt against Rome. While Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the one who brings peace, the one who demanded that these people pay their taxes to Caesar... He goes off to a shameful, disgraceful execution. Clearly nobody in this passage looks good here, except for Jesus. Clearly all people here are responsible for this terrible injustice. And yet, as Lori shared with us this morning, this is exactly what Jesus came to do. This is exactly what God's will was for Jesus to do. He must become the guilty prisoner so that the guilty prisoners can become innocent free men. Children, this is so important. Children, we need to see that Jesus takes our place. He becomes guilty. He gets the blame so that those who deserve the blame can go free. It's like if you are playing a sport and you get injured on the field. Your team can't play the game without you, but there might be a substitute who comes in and takes your place on the field so the team can win. Jesus takes our place. Everybody, how does this apply to us? Look at this king and trust that he can take your place. Please don't miss his release. Friends, this is not just a dream. This is God's kingdom. This is how God's kingdom works, that you have not done what is right by God, but Jesus 
took your place. You have lived more for yourself than you have lived for God and for others. But Jesus stepped in and he gave up his rights for you. How does this fact play out in life? Well, if you're here today and you are not following Christ or you do not claim to be a Christian, please know that there is a way for you to know God, that Jesus will take your place if you trust in him. And everything that you deserve has been put on him and you get what he deserves as the innocent one. And you can draw close to God. And this fact doesn't just impact you when you first come to know God, but it impacts us every day. How does this fact of Jesus' release play out in life? Well, when I keep coming home late from work, this is a chronic struggle for me. I allow myself to get distracted by one more thing and then one more thing and one more thing, even though I've given my wife my word that I'll be home in a certain time. My hope is in producing and accomplishing and doing one more thing. And I remind myself that Jesus took my place. Jesus took my place. And my wife is incredibly gracious and patient with me, though she still wishes I would get home when I say I would get home. But I don't need to spiral downward into insecurity and fear and anger and starting to snap at others because I'm disappointed with myself. Jesus took my place before you go down that dark path of anger and self-justification or shame and despair over your past or your weakness or the things that you keep screwing up, before you go down that dark path of hardness to God's calling or his moral demands on your life, consider this simple fact and remind yourself of it day by day, that Jesus took your place. Jesus did that so that you could be released. And every day, you can start fresh and you can seek to honor him. Don't stew in the pain and the misery. Don't miss this king's release. Don't mistake this man's identity. He is the king. And don't miss this king's release. He took your place. Third and finally, don't abhor this king's Mockery. We've covered two of our three words so far, identity and release. When you see his identity as king and you find the king's release, that you, the guilty one, can go free because the innocent one took on your guilt, you will face his mockery. When you see his identity and you find his release, you will face his mockery. This is how God's kingdom works. And so don't be surprised by it or ashamed of it. And don't presume that everything will be easy and happy for you from here on out because you're a part of God's kingdom. Because look at what happens in God's kingdom. Verses 16 through 20. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. 
And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. So Pilate's soldiers come on the scene here for the first time in verse 16. And though Pilate considers Jesus innocent, he doesn't prevent his soldiers from having a good time with this prisoner. And the way they treat Jesus shows us a picture of how the world views God's kingdom. And we should expect more of the same. I'm going to show you the symmetry of this paragraph because it makes an interesting point. The, 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 The paragraph has this beautiful symmetry. It begins and ends in 16 and 20 with them leading Jesus away. So they led him away into the palace and then they lead him out to crucify him. And then if you move in from there, the symmetry continues where in verse 17, they clothe him in a purple cloth, which is what a king would be dressed in. So they're, they're feigning royalty here. And in verse 20, they strip that purple cloak back off of him. Then you move inside a little bit further. At the end of verse 17, they crown his head with thorns. And in verse 19, they strike his head with a reed while they're spitting and kneeling down. They're, they're faking allegiance to this king. They're dressing him. They're playing dress up with him. And at the center of this symmetry, what Mark wants to draw some our attention to is verse 18, where they begin to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. Of course, it's a spoof. It's a farce. But we know, we see, it's the heart of Mark's message. That though these soldiers intended as a farce, Mark puts those words in their mouths to show us his message. Hail, King of the Jews. The soldiers don't do this because they believe him. They do it to make fun of him. And this is what people do when they feel insecure and out of control. They try to make light of their situation and they seek pleasure in the disparagement of others. But in this mockery, they speak an incredible truth. This is the king of the Jews, and he deserves to be hailed. He deserves to receive praise and honor. This man, Jesus, sent his spirit to give these soldiers breath, and they use that breath to mock him and put him down. Friends, this is how God's kingdom works. As Jesus predicted in chapter 10 of this book, he must be mocked, spit on, flogged, and killed. This is to show that God's kingdom doesn't work like the world works. God's leaders do not lord themselves over others. The greatest must become the servants of all. And if that means being the butt of incredibly hurtful and painful mistreatment, so be it. This kingdom has a king who will seek and save the lost. Jesus will give his life as a ransom for many. And so as we live in this kingdom and we teach this kingdom, we must understand how it works. This means that I can't tell my children to be kind to their siblings when they are mistreated and then turn around and complain about a little league parent who didn't turn in their medical form on time. I can't fight back with silent treatment when an extended family member gives me a cold shoulder 
So you see, I must not only instruct about God's kingdom, but I must expect that mistreatment will come. That this king was mocked. And I, I can't abhor that because it will come. How, how does this apply for us? Friends, look at this king. Look at this king while these soldiers mock him and expect to share his mockery. We should look at this king and we should expect to share in his mockery. In a university town, you understand that it is not typically acceptable to follow a man who suffered and died. We're supposed to follow people with lots of degrees, whose research gets published, who who have the wisdom that we're looking for. They're the experts. We don't follow, we're not supposed to follow a man who suffered and died. And some suspect, many suspect that the Bible is not trustworthy, that God is a figment of our imagination, and that faith has nothing to do with evidence or reason. And when we go out there and we call this man our king, we will not be appreciated for that. Back in in this spring, as I was coaching, helping to coach my daughter's little league team, there was a fellow coach that I had a conversation with one day. And I asked him, what do you do for a living? And he said, I, I service medical equipment in operating rooms. Like, wow, that's that's amazing. Tell me more about that. And we talked about it. And inevitably, the end of that part of the conversation, he turned it around. How about you? What do you do for a living? So I told him, I, I teach the Bible and to, to people and, and help them to follow Jesus. And uh, before I could say, Grand Slam home run, he had changed the subject and would never return to it again. He was a nice enough guy. He didn't put a crown of thorns on me. I'm grateful for that, but he was clearly not interested in honoring me for what I do. And that's okay because I'm not here for the honor from people. I'm here because of my king. Friends, look at this king, and please don't ever take your eyes off of him. He was smitten for you so that you could be smitten with him. Look at this king. Hail, the king of the Jews, and his life and his death will shape yours. His love will characterize you, and you will be invited into his glory. Please join me in hailing the king of the Jews. We're going to close with that old hymn that we learned this morning, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted, which talks all about this king. Stricken, smitten, and afflicted, see him dying on the tree. Tis the Christ by man rejected. Yes, my soul, tis he, tis he. Tis the long-expected prophet, David's son, yet David's Lord. Proofs I see sufficient of it. Tis a true and faithful word. Tell me, ye who hear him groaning, was there ever grief like his? Friends through fear his cause disowning, foes insulting his distress. Many hands were raised to wound him. None would interpose to save. 
But the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, son of man and son of God. Here we have a firm foundation. Here the refuge of the lost. Christ the rock of our salvation. His the name of which we boast. Lamb of God for sinners wounded, sacrifice to cancel guilt, none shall ever be confounded who on him their hope have built. Friends, don't mistake this man's identity. He is the king. And don't miss this king's release. He took your place so you could go free. And don't abhor this king's mockery. As you join his kingdom, you will share in it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, please help us to behold our king. And may we hail Jesus as king of the Jews. Help us never to take our eyes off of him, that we might live as productive citizens of your kingdom, Thank you, Lord, for this privilege that we could join you. And thank you for sending this lamb to be slaughtered for us, this sacrifice to cancel our guilt. And Lord, we are trusting in your promise as we build our hope on Jesus. We are trusting that we will never be confounded. We will never be turned away and that nothing can separate us from your love. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.